I'm Glenn Robinson, and I've spent the last 30 years as a healthcare leader and overseeing large organizations. And before that, I was in the news business. And I'm Jacob Robinson, his son. I've spent the last five years building a business and learning lessons of leadership along the way. And this is our podcast, Chasing What Matters. On this podcast, we're going to interview leaders from all walks of life and hear their stories of successes and failures and what has made them become who they are today and how their faith and families played a role in their lives and leadership styles. During these interviews, we will be discussing things from business to politics, healthcare to nonprofit, and anything in between to find out how these leaders are chasing what matters in their work and personal life. So welcome to another episode of Chasing What Matters. Hey everyone, we're so glad you could join us for another episode of the Chasing What Matters podcast. I'm your co-host, Jacob Robinson. And I'm your other co-host, Glenn Robinson. Our guest today is Chet Edwards. Chet, as many know, a former member of Congress and now a partner at Edwards, Davis, Stoner & Associates, which is a government relations consulting firm located in Virginia. Chet is a graduate of Texas A&M University. He also teaches at Baylor University and is married to his wife, Leanne. And they are the parents, proud parents of two sons, JT and Garrison. Chet, welcome to Chasing What Matters. Glenn, thanks. It's great to be with you and Jacob. Well, to get us started, Chet, tell us about growing up and tell us what growing up was like. Glenn, I was born in 1951. Uh, My dad was a naval aviator in World War II and trained uh, naval naval aviators at the Corpus Christi Naval Air Station. So I grew up uh, as a a son of three children, a brother and a sister, in a middle-class working family. My dad, after the Navy, uh, created a small seafood business. So I uh, was a product of public schools and uh, just a a great uh, 1950s neighborhood where folks got to know each other and and, uh, really treated each other as as neighbors. I then uh, went to high school in Houston, where my father had moved when I was in the ninth grade. And after high school, uh, Jacob, I, I went on to Aggieland and uh, uh, graduated from Texas A&M. But my, I had a good childhood. I was very blessed. Uh, my mother and father uh, were uh, married, happy uh, people of faith, and uh, they really instilled from me from my earliest days as a child the importance of faith in our lives, and, and that impacted my ultimate career in public service. Now, you, you mentioned one of your greatest achievements already is uh, going to Texas A&M. And uh, uh, so, so what led you, was it your dad's ba- military background? How, how did you end up at Texas A&M? Jacob, uh, it, it's fascinating. I was a senior in high school, and as an Aggie, it's hard to admit this, but I'd actually applied uh, at uh, Texas University in Austin oh, and um, had been accepted, had down payment on my deposit, but I was a halfway decent golfer in the Houston Golf Association gave me a scholarship I could use anywhere in Texas, but a lot of uh, their leaders were Aggies. So they said, uh, hey, come on up and and look at Texas A&M. And I went up there and the first sight I saw of Texas A&M, first time I'd ever seen it was the old court arms. And it looked like the state penitentiary in in Huntsville. And I came back home and said, well, sure, I'm going to go to that place. And then the more I thought about it, the dean of the business school, I, I was not a Ben Crenshaw, Tom Kite, or Jack Nicholas, or Tiger Woods golfer. Uh, uh, I was a so-so golfer, maybe good enough to play a little bit in college. But, you know, the, the Aggies, uh, from the dean of the business school, the professors gave me their time and attention. And I thought, you know, I've heard about this Aggie mystique, of, of this Aggie brotherhood. And so the more I thought about it, I thought, uh, what a great place to go. And I went, and it was later uh, as a student when I met Congressman Olin Teague, that changed my my career forever. Well, I got to know, how did you wind up marrying the preacher's daughter? <clears throat> well, it took me a long time. I, w- I was 40 <laughs> years old when I finally got married, 39 when I proposed to Leanne Glenn. And, uh, you know, it, I, I met her on a blind date, and she'll strangle me for this. But uh, uh, I had the audacity, and it, it was uh, she should have put me down for this. I called her on a Friday afternoon while I was in the middle of a campaign, asked her if she could go out that night. And when she said yes, I, I was so impressed that she wasn't bothered that I called her on Friday afternoon. So I went down to Fort Hood, gave a speech 
When I got back to Waco and called her, she mysteriously had some work to do that night. She thought about it and rightfully said, who is this guy? And and so I, I laugh. Uh, I got stood up on my first uh, blind date with my wife, but I hung in there and uh, got to know her. And uh, while I was uh, raised as a, a Methodist, uh, I, I loved Leanne and, and her family and, and started attending Methodist and Baptist churches uh, while we were dating each other. Now, now that's that's interesting, right? So, what what was that? Uh, let, we'll just be honest here uh, on on the podcast. What was that ego shot where you go from delivering a campaign speech, right? People are there to listen to you, to hear what you got to say. You're feeling probably on top of the world, and then to come and be shot down of you're not going to actually get to go on a date. How, how how was that actually? Well, it put me in my proper place, Jacob. <laughs> I, I I deserved it. Calling on a Friday afternoon uh, and asking if she could go out that night. So I, I learned my lesson and Leanne's been a wonderful influence on my life ever since and is the love and, and joy of my life now. That's good. That's good. Set, set the tone of the relationship early on. I like, I like her strategy there. That's good. I, I was going to say, before we move on too much farther away from Leanne, <laughs> uh, uh, one of uh, real claims to fame of uh, Baylor Scott and White Hillcrest is that uh, she worked in the public relations area at the hospital for a number of years. And uh, so we're proud that uh, she is uh, alumni of, uh, of, of Hillcrest. <laughs> well, in fact, Glenn, I think the first time I ever saw Leanne was on the medical minute, which was the 62nd, uh, broadcast that Hillcrest sponsored. And she did that interviewing different physicians. And so uh, thank you. You you guys doing that uh, uh, changed my life very dramatically. I, I saw her on television and said, I've, I've got to get to know her. And uh, now she's my bride and the, the mother of our two sons. Oh, that's she awesome. is a great, that's great awesome. lady, great family. Well, we, we've alluded to it already. Uh, you, you obviously got involved in politics um, and, and you had met the congressman when you were at A&M. T- tell us about that journey of working in politics and then ultimately deciding to uh, actually get into the game as a candidate uh, yourself and why you felt called to that, uh, that arena. Jacob, I didn't come from a political family, no elected officials, um, nobody really active in politics, but I I was motivated by the civil rights movement of the 60s that convinced me that, uh, you know, people of good faith from all political parties working together from all races uh, can can work together to make our society a better place where we can truly love our neighbors as thyself. When I went to A&M, I was elected. I was never student body president uh, as you were, but I was elected to the Texas or to the A&M Senate, later to the Texas Senate. But in, in the, my involvement in the A&M Senate, I realized I, I liked political interactions. And then uh, a student conference that I chaired called SCONA uh, brought students from all over the country together uh, was sponsored by Congressman Olin E. Teague, who was the most decorated World War II veteran to serve in the U.S. House. Wow. In my senior year, I asked Mr. Teague if he'd help me get a job with Senator Benson. And Senator Benson said he didn't have any... Uh, uh, any openings that, that he could hire me for. And the day I graduated, I walked out of commencement at G. Raleigh White Coliseum and my history professor, Haskell Monroe, said, check, congratulations on your job. And I nearly elbowed him. Haskell was a good friend of mine, Dr. Monroe, but everybody was kidding me with an economics degree. Who in the world was going to hire me? And so I called Haskell uh, later that afternoon and said, you were just kidding about congratulations on the job. And he said, well, you haven't talked to Congressman Teague yet. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, here's his home phone number. I think you ought to call him. Well, I called Mr. Teague, woke him up at about 930. I forgot it was an hour later in D.C. versus Texas. I woke him up. We chatted for a minute. And he said, come come meet me tomorrow morning in my office. So I got a 2 a.m. flight out of Houston, Texas, got on a plane, still didn't know what Mr. Teague and I were going to talk about changed planes in Atlanta, uh, got to Washington's airport, changed clothes there, went to Mr. Teague's office, and he had a big smile on his face and said, why don't you come work for me as my legislative assistant? So it was that relationship at Texas A&M and my student activities that allowed me to meet Congressman Teague. And then he is the one who, again, changed my career forever. He gave me that first job. And two years later, while he was campaigning for re-election, I'd only been out of A&M for two years. He said, uh, I nearly wrecked the car. He said, Chet, 
Um, I'm going to retire in two years and you ought to run for my seat. Well, Mr. Teague was a hero to me as a World War II uh, hero, uh, combat veteran of Europe and Mr. Veteran in the U.S. Congress. And I, I couldn't believe that he would even think I could be qualified to run for office. So that uh, uh, that started me down the path to public service. And as I look back on it, <clears throat> I want I know the cynicism toward all things politics these days. And I understand that. But I want to say to young people listening that public service, as President Bush 41 said, it is a noble calling and it still should be. We need uh, servant leaders. And, and I personally believe we need people uh, of faith in, in, in public service as well. Wow. What? Uh, wow. That, that is a <clears throat> remarkable story. I'm, I'm, I'm stunned by this. Um, I, have, I feel like I have so many questions, but how, so how old were you when in that car story that you're talking about when he says, Hey, I'm going to retire in two years, what are you 25, 26? I was only 23 years old and I was 25 when I, when wow. I, when I announced, and you know, Jacob, one other thing I'd add to that is I, I was really pulled by my faith. Um, as a Methodist, uh, I was taught that by my parents and at my church that loving thy neighbor wasn't a call by Christ to have good feelings about our neighbors. It was a call to action, a call to make a difference. So uh, as a child, I think just part of my religious values and it became part of my DNA was that, you know, we're all uh, given different gifts and, and uh, the, the, the blessing of, of life. And we need to do something. Life shouldn't just be about oneself. It ought to be about making a difference for others. So my, I, I did not try to wear my faith on my sleeve in office. I never wanted to be guilty of using religion as a means to my own reelection. But faith was absolutely instrumental in my even choosing public service as a career. Chet, one of the things that I was excited about when we moved here 14 years ago was knowing that you are our congressman. And, uh, and also knowing that you're a Democrat, but you also were serving in what many would consider a, a traditionally conservative district. And, and you served there faithfully for many years. Tell us how you did that and tell us why we don't see districts like that much anymore. Glenn, uh, the voters of Central Texas were very uh, gracious to me and letting me represent them for eight years in the Texas Senate and 20 in the U.S. Congress. And Yes, I, I was a Democrat, um, but and, and I felt at its best, the Democratic Party and its roots is a party that cares for the dignity of everyday working people. But um, I never felt once an election was over that I was elected to represent Democrats. I was elected to represent all the people of our district. And I, I learned at a, at a young age that I don't have a monopoly on wisdom. So that's why I could respect people who thought differently than me and why I wanted to <clears throat> cross party lines and find common bonds on important issues facing our country. I don't think either political party has a monopoly on wisdom. I certainly don't have a, a monopoly on wisdom. And so that's why it was comfortable for me to cross the, the party aisle and try to try to work together. And uh, obviously, we need a lot more of that approach from Republicans and Democrats today. I think at the end of the day, a lot of Republicans in my district didn't agree with every vote I cast, but they felt I uh, fought hard for Fort Hood and for the military, a strong national defense, and for health care and respect to America's veterans. Uh, I cared about fiscal responsibility. So I, I think there was a common bond of, of, of values there that allowed me to be elected uh, for 28 years in Central Texas. Even though when I left, I was a Democrat representing the most Republican district in the U.S. House represented by, by a Democrat. Wow. Well, I would say, too, one thing that our listeners may not realize is that in the latter years of your service, your district, uh, you know, changed as it did several times during, during your time of service. And while you previously did represent a, a Bell County, Colleen, Fort Hood, in the latter years, that was not a part of your official district. However, I know we would not have a brand new hospital at Fort Hood 
if it had not been for Chet Edwards and uh, you continuing to go to bat to have that hospital replaced with a updated and modern facility providing much better health care for uh, some of our nation's bravest men and women who faithfully serve in our armed forces. So thank you for, for doing that. Thank you for stepping outside of your district and continuing to serve our region and our country well. Well, Glenn, thank you for that. And as with all things that are positive, uh, that was a, a team effort. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time as chairman of the Military Construction Appropriations Subcommittee. Um, but I know that I can never give back nearly as much. I can't even make the down payment uh, on what my family owes our military families and our veterans and what they've sacrificed for our country. So one of the greatest privileges I had in public service was trying to fight for better health care and education and quality of life for our, our military families. Uh, we're so blessed to live in a country where people are willing to sacrifice so much uh, to protect our country and its freedoms, including its religious freedom. Yeah, so true. Well, you, you know, uh, Chad, you, you don't know this, uh, but when I was at A&M uh, senior, I had the opportunity to be in a leadership position. Uh, I was uh, what at the time felt like major, major uh, you know, things that when you're in college, the, the, that is the most important thing, whatever's going on right in front of you. But, um, I was encouraged by people that were surrounded by you, uh, to look to you as an example of how to handle situations that, uh, you know, you, you may not always, uh, wake up that morning saying, I think that's the side I'm going to vote on, or that's the side I'm going to go down. But when, when people open your eyes, uh, and allow you to, um, be educated, I like your saying, uh, you don't have a monopoly on wisdom when you have, the opportunity for people to, to, you know, educate you, speak into your life, uh, your eyes can be open. And and what that does is you end up reaching across and uh, metaphorically, but in your situation, realistically across the aisle to do work. And that's one of the things that you were known for in your career was, uh, great bipartisan efforts and great bipartisan successes. And, and I know as, um, I tell people all the time, uh, if I have a hobby, it's, it's politics, right? I enjoy watching. I enjoy learning. I enjoy the nuts and bolts of it. Um, right. and, and from the outside looking in, you don't see that anymore. So my, my question is kind of two part to you. One is, 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 am I correct in thinking that you don't see that anymore? And then two, if I am correct, why do we not see that anymore? Jacob, awfully important questions. Number one, I think there's more bipartisanship in the U.S. Congress than you'd see by watching the national news every day. Uh, when I chaired the Veterans Affairs and Military Construction Appropriations Subcommittee, we would work uh, with Republicans and, and put together a bipartisan bill. It would generally pass in the U.S. House by 425 to three, but no reporters covered that bill because there wasn't controversy. So when you watch the news, if it, their, their attitude for many reporters is if it's not controversy, then it's not national news. So there is still some behind the scenes bipartisanship going on. But having said that, uh, I think things in Congress are much more partisan than, than they were when I was first elected in 1970, and certainly a lot more than when I was um, when I I was really a young man working for Congressman Teague. In fact, I can give my career not only credit to Mr. Teague but the bipartisanship. Uh, Mr. Teague, a Democratic congressman who chaired the House Democratic Caucus, had invited Republican Vice President Gerald Ford to come to the AM commencement the year I graduated. It was during that commencement that Teague heard I was given the, the Earl Rudder Award. And Earl Rudder and Mr. Teague had been classmates at AM and very close friends. And I think it was Mr. Teague being at that commencement because Gerald Ford accepted his bipartisan request to come speak to the AM commencement. That literally changed my my life. Um, I wish we could have more of that. I, I think, uh, you know, people ask me, where does this partisanship come from? And most people point their finger at Washington, D.C. That's the conventional wisdom. Let's change the leadership in Congress. <clears throat> I would respond a little differently. I would say that leadership in Washington does set the tone for our country. And we do need Democrats and Republicans to be more respectful in their debate and more bipartisan in their legislative work. But not one of those members of Congress or president elected him or herself. They were all elected by we the people. 
And what the polls are showing is that we're either watching Fox News on the right or MSNBC and CNN on the left, and then we're listening to our conservative political blogs if we're conservative, liberal, progressive blogs if we're on, on the left. And so what, hap- what, what the Gallup polls are showing is we, the people, are very divided. We're voting <clears throat> straight Republican or straight Democratic in, in elections. And in 2004, when George Bush, 43, who was my constituent and a friend, was elected over John Kerry with two-thirds of the vote, 66% of the vote, I still won re-election on that same ballot because we, the people of Central Texas— would vote for a Republican for president and a Democrat for the U.S. House. Now, out of 435 House seats, you probably have less than 25 or 30 who are, uh, House members who are elected from a party different from their district uh, having voted for president of an, another party. I think somehow, I don't know the solution. I believe in a free press. I don't want a government committee to decide what is fair and balanced news. That's what the marketplace should decide it. I do think we'll get beyond this. We've gone through these kind of eras uh, in the past and in our country's history that we forget about. But I do think it's critical for our democracy that we bring back bipartisanship because we're not a parliamentary government where a majority of one can control effectively. We're a checks and balances government, according to our founding fathers, because they didn't want any one person or party to have too much power. So compromise is not only not a four-letter word, compromise is how our country was created in the first place. And uh, the great achievements in our society, including things such as Social Security, were on a bipartisan, done on a bipartisan basis. So I hope we, the people and the leaders in Washington, can get back to realizing we don't have to hate each other because we disagree on issues. We ought to listen to each other and learn from each other. We ought to have empathy for and respect each other. And if we do, our democracy will, will be fine in, in the long run. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, right? I, I think it's, yes, uh, sure, let's throw some stones and let's <laughs> let's lay the blame at Washington, right. D.C., but at the end of the day, it doesn't take two seconds for you to scroll through your own Facebook feed or uh, Instagram feed to, to see your, your own community, you know, uh, very angry uh, at, at different things. Right. And 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 how do you know so so the if the topic is how do we move past this right i think part of that is learning how to have honest tough conversations right and 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 doing them in in respectful ways and so my my question to you is how what would your advice be to listeners out there uh, that say hey listen i i i almost just steer away from politics because it's just it becomes an all out brawl before i even know what happens how should one approach a tough conversation around politics in this divisive world that we live in? Jacob, I begin with the belief in my faith that we're all children of God. So I should respect every other person, whether that person uh, is the same race, religion, or different race, religion, color, political viewpoint that I have. Secondly, I begin my discussions in politics with the understanding that I don't have a monopoly on wisdom. Listen, I can't explain black holes in space. I, I can't fully explain the, the idea of infinity. I, you know, I shoot, I had a hard time with calculus at Texas A&M. So if I, if I can't uh, make an A in a freshman calculus course at A&M, why in a political discussion should I believe that I'm always right and someone else is wrong. So I think if we could just start with that humility and then the respect that we're all God's children, then we can have an honest discussion with each other. You know, for the last several years, I've co-chaired the Arlington National Cemetery Advisory Committee. It's been one of the great privileges of my life. And every time I go to those hallowed grounds and I look at those 400,000 grave sites with the white stones I don't know if the people buried uh, in, in those plots are Democrats, Republicans, liberals, moderates, or conservatives. But I do know that they were Americans, many of whom died in combat, defending our freedom to have disagreements. You know, we ought to we ought to celebrate our differences, Democrat from Republican, right from moderate 
to, to, to left. It, it, it's called freedom. But with that freedom needs to come the respect that none of us has a monopoly, that only in a dictatorship you get everything you want. And even dictators usually don't get everything they want. But if we could just begin from the fundamental foundation of respect, that we're all God's children, and that none of us has a monopoly on truth, wisdom, or facts, then I think we can have these honest, heartfelt debates and discussions without coming to hate each other. You know, it's interesting you say that. I I, I totally agree. And I, I, not that I, I'll caveat this with I'm not uh, perfect in, in that in that area by any stretch of the imagination. But but I do look back. Um, I, I remember vividly, you know, when we were in the hospital so long with my son. I remember one of the I, I, I walked out of that experience with many uh, thoughts and revelations and experiences. But one of the things I remember uh, so clear is is kind of this one night we were sitting in the um, it was the ICU. Um, cafeteria essentially waiting room so so you've got the big one for everybody at the hospital and then you've got this private section for the families of the 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 kids that are in the icu the most critical kids there and i remember eating dinner one night and i get choked up thinking about this i, I remember eating dinner and looking up at the tv another family a few families were in there um and it was another family that um was from the middle east there was another family from mexico uh there was another uh, 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 there was an african-american family we were there. I mean, it, it truly was all different races and nations. Uh, and we were watching some Spanish soap opera that I have no idea what they were saying. Right. And, and everybody was on the same team. We were on, on the same team that none of us wanted to be there, but we were there because our kids were there. And, 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 and I, I said all the time, um, your kids being sick in a hospital is a great equalizer amongst humans. Right. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how educated you are, or how poor you are. Uh, you're, you're all in the same boat together. And, and I, I think about back at the beginning of COVID, right? I mean, before COVID right. got somehow oddly political, if, if you think about the first few weeks of it, there was this, this pull together of humanity where, where we really just bonded together. Yes. As Americans, but even almost as a, as a global society, uh, and how quickly we forget that. Um, and, and how quickly we go back to our corners and, I saw yesterday there was a shooting in Atlanta over over somebody wearing a mask or not. You know, it's it's crazy how we've just that has devolved. Uh, but I, I think you're right. I, I really don't have any other point than just saying um, I, I think we forget at the end of the day that we're all God's children. Uh, and at the at the end of the day, uh, we'll all meet our maker and, and um, we're all equal in his eyes. Jacob, you know, thanks for saying that. I, it's what I love about your podcast, Chasing What Matters. It, You know, what matters in this world is is love and to love and to be loved. And, uh, you know, your love of Pierce, your son, um, the experience that you and your family went through uh, reminds us of what really matters in this world. And if we could just take a step back in our political world these days, and realize that we have so much, uh, con- you know, people across the world, what do they want? Uh, they they want to, you know, they, they want a chance to have a decent job and <clears throat> have a, a adequate home and a safe neighborhood. And uh, they want their children to be loved and want to have a little retirement security someday where they can enjoy time with family. And those common bonds of humanity cross all religions uh, all races, all nationalities, and 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 we Democrats and Republicans in America just have to remember those folks buried at Arlington Cemetery that we're Americans first, and if we could do that, our democracy would be so much better, and and everyday citizens would have so much more faith in our political system. That's good. Well, before we leave the topic of COVID, and Jacob brought it up, uh, l- let me just share a behind-the-scenes story uh, to our listeners. Uh, we were probably, I would say, the third or fourth week of, of serious uh, a, you know, expansion of, of the viral uh, complications across our, our, our country last year. And right. uh, it, it, it was very early in the pandemic. It was probably somewhere in the first part of March. And I got a phone call and it was from Chad Edwards and uh, a guy that's not serving in Congress anymore. Uh, he has, has no reason to do that other than he cares. And he called to find out what's really going on, but also to say, 
I still have friends in Washington tell me what the healthcare system needs and where are those needs. And, and I mean, I shared those things with you and things. Uh, I, I know you immediately began to call people saying we need more testing. Uh, we need more supplies. We need more PPE and, and, um, and, 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 and you care, uh, even if you're our congressman or you're just one of our fellow co-journers in this uh, uh, journey that we have before us. And so, Chet, thank you so much uh, for that. And while we're talking about partisan thinking, I am just curious, where do you get your news these days? I, I, I started out as a journalist in the 1970s, and I used to think that we had fair and balanced news. Then I saw the networks kind of begin to drift one toward one corner, one toward the other. And I'm still trying to figure out where the rest of us get our news from these days. Glenn, that's one of the questions Baylor students ask me. And uh, it's a hard one to answer. It's hard to know uh, where do you go for truly objective news. I'm, I'm almost, you know, we don't have a Walter Cronkite who is not only the most respected journalist, but the most respected American for about 20 years, because he'd finish, as you recall, his, his newscast every night on CBS saying, and that's the way it is. And people trusted Walter Cronkite, whether they were Republican or Democrat or conservative or moderate or, or liberal. I'm almost to the point where I, I encourage students to, you know, listen to news from all different sides. It's hard to find objective news. So listen to all sides and then come up with your judgment. L- listen to Fox News, but then go listen to CNN and MSNBC. Um, read the Washington Post, but read the Wall Street Journal. I almost think it takes a, a, a balance because between what I call siloed news, either far right or far left or special interest group and, and our blogs, uh, we're, we're all putting ourselves in these political silos where we not only don't open our minds to other people's point of view, but uh, we're disrespectful of other people's political views. Uh, great wisdom. And I, I, I like that of sampling. I think that, I think that's probably the safest thing to do and not, not, not rely on any particular, uh, news source, uh, to make sure that we're, we're looking at things not only here at home, but also around the world. And there, there are several other good organizations that do a good job of covering world affairs as well. well and Glenn, let me jump in. Uh, yeah. Let me thank you. Thank me. I should thank you, uh, for what you did in healthcare for your entire career, talk about a career of, of serving others. Um, what's more important to our families than, than the health of our, our families? And in COVID, uh, our physicians in America and our hospital, our nurses, our assistants, everybody who walked through those hospital doors every day to save the lives of, of their fellow neighbors, they truly were loving their neighbors as thyselves. They were living out the faith that has motivated me all my life. And so, is we get down on ourselves. Sometimes we <clears throat> Americans get pretty down on ourselves, particularly with our focus on political partisanship these days. But I hope once in a while we'll step back and think how blessed we are to live in a country where we have religious freedom, unlike China or Russia or other parts of the world throughout history. And we have opportunities that that most people could only dream about. In fact, I've said to young people that don't give up on our democracy because all is not broken in our democracy as long as our immigration problem is what it is. We still have more people trying to get into America and live here than try to get out of it and stay away forever. Why? Because we do have religious freedom, because we do have freedom of the press and association, because we do have economic opportunities they can only dream about in Central America or other parts of the world. Well, of no reason uh, and and no action of our own, we were just all three blessed to be born in the great United States of America. And it is, uh, without a doubt, the greatest country in the world. And I could not imagine uh, growing up anywhere else. And uh, when I'm with you. And, and when all of us have the privilege of traveling to other countries and we see some of the challenges our, our fellow uh, brothers and sisters have, we, uh, we pause and uh, uh, that spirit of gratefulness that you just expressed so well certainly comes to mind. 
Well, Chet, during your time as at, at Congress, uh, I've had a chance uh, when I was in the news business of of following congressmen around, and you get to do some really cool <laughs> stuff. Uh, you have access to things that, uh, uh, well, the rest of us just don't for good reason, uh, because you really need to know the inner workings of whether it's the military or what's going on in a foreign country. But but tell our listeners uh, as you look back over your career in the U.S. Congress, uh, just a great career. But tell us about some of those cool opportunities that you had. The most privileged opportunity, Glenn, was to be able to be a voice for the people of our district. And I consider that an honor every single day and why I encourage other young people to think about public service. Uh, it was hard work. I traveled a lot. Uh, I put in a lot of hours. If, whether you like or dislike members of Congress, I will tell you, the vast majority of, on both sides of the aisle uh, work, work hard and, and they do love our, our country. In addition to all the work, I, I did get to do some fun things I haven't talked a lot about in, in public, but, you know, I'll never forget uh, being asked uh, when President Clinton was in the White House, he played golf and he knew I uh, was a halfway decent golfer. So he invited me uh, several times. At one time, it said to be three of us playing and one of them was uh, the president. Another was Congressman Bill, Bru Bill Brewster, a friend of mine from Oklahoma. And they said, we don't know who the fourth is. And I call them back and said, can you tell me who the fourth is? And they called back a day later and said, yes, it's, his name is Mr. Hope. Well, I got to play golf with Bob Hope uh, wow. about two weeks wow. before his 92nd birthday. And what a thrill that was. And I hope my two sons, JT and Garrison, appreciate the fact that, you know, every summer they got to play uh, football using lemons on the uh, White House lawn at the Congressional summer summer picnic. Um, uh, on a more serious note, something that uh, always will make an impression on me is uh, being at, in Normandy, France on the 50th anniversary of D-Day and seeing up front and close these incredible World War II veterans who literally saved the world from Adolf Hitler's tyranny. Uh, knowing that so many of their friends and comrades uh, are buried in, in that hallowed cemetery at the top of Omaha Beach there. And that that experience reminded me not only about the sacrifice that Americans make to make this country the blessed nation it is today, but it reminded me that America has really been a beacon of hope and freedom for the world. And, and yes, we're not a perfect nation, but uh, we're a nation that has made the world a much better place. And, and those soldiers and Marines that landed uh, on D-Day in Normandy, France, uh, literally, literally changed the, the world. I, it was fun to go meet with the presidents. And, and one time I had a meeting within two hours, I met with both uh, Bill Gates at the time, the richest man in the world before Jeff Bezos came along. And then a couple of hours later, Rosa Parks, Wow. Two people from different directions. Bill Gates, the richest man in the world, changed America through technology. Rosa Parks, a, a, a low-income seamstress in a southern segregated Alabama town that decided one day that she wasn't going to sit on the back of the bus and ignited a civil rights movement that really awakened a sleeping conscience of, of our nation and made America a fairer, fair, better place for all of our citizens. So meeting people like... Uh, Rosa Parks and Bill Gates and presidents was uh, th that was an exciting uh, opportunity. But I, as I look back on it, I think what I really cherish the most is the everyday heroes I met, <clears throat> teachers who volunteered to help a student after class who was struggling or had special needs, um, volunteers going to our Waco VA hospital to let our veterans know that their sacrifice for country hasn't been forgotten. Uh, you're my friend, Robert Pearson, who recently passed away, who, who shined shoes at the Waco airport for 14 years. And just he didn't shine, just shine shoes. He lightened up that airport and all of us privileged to see Robert and, and know him. It, it's meeting those everyday heroes that just constantly kept me from becoming a cynic about our politics or our challenges or our problems or our shortcomings. It just reminded me of the decency and the faith and the values of, of everyday American citizens. And I, I, that was, 
I think the really the greatest privilege I had in 28 years in office, getting to know those everyday heroes. Wow. Well, I, I have I have a serious question, and then I have a, a, a not so serious question for you. All right. Uh, as it pertains to that. the serious question, what was it like being in the halls of Congress after 9-11? It was gut-wrenching. Uh, I was literally 50 yards from the center of the Capitol at 8.30 that morning and had the airplane uh, that left New York, New Jersey, not been an hour late in departing. Uh, our Capitol probably would have been destroyed. It was the target of the airplane that, because it was delayed, was brought down by the incredible heroism of, of the passengers. Um, it was an attack on our democracy. And it, uh, you know, those of us that weren't around at Pearl Harbor just couldn't even imagine something like that. And uh, uh, I thought of my children at school a mile from the CIA offices in Northern Virginia and <clears throat> wondered if they were safe. Uh, it, it reminded me, as as you were reminded, in, in the hospital rooms of, of what really counts in this life. It's our, it's our love of family, uh, a love of our children. Um, and um, I, it, it was just a terrible experience. But I, the good thing was that our country came together after that. I'm sorry we then got back into our partisan camps eventually, but uh, for a few brief days and weeks and months, uh, Americans realized that we had more in common with each other than we did uh, in contrast with, with each other. And uh, so that was a that was a sad day, but uh, America stood up. I really respect President Bush 43's uh, leadership through that process. And I also will always remember what he did at a time that politically it might have not been an easy thing for him to do. He went to a mosque and and said to those people of faith there that we respect Islam, that America does not hate Islam. Uh, we hate the, the terrorist acts perpetrated by a few. And uh, I will always admire President Bush for having done that. Wow. Wow. Well, <clears throat> that's ac accidentally a great segue into my not so serious question, because uh, I was actually going to reference President Bush uh, for this. You know, one of uh, my favorite things, and, and I love President Bush, uh, favorite uh, uh, president um, to, to study and to respect and, right. and admire. But one of my favorite things, honestly, is to watch his, uh, you know, his screw-ups on YouTube. You know, funny things he said, uh, his isms, you know, just funny accidents uh, that, that tend to follow him everywhere. So my question to you is, do you ever, did you ever have a story where you were either on a world stage, meeting a world leader or something like that, where you, you had a, a we'll call it a Chetism, uh, where, where it was a, one of those moments where you're like, I don't know how that just happened. Well, fortunately, uh, unlike Al Gore, I never said that I invented the internet with a, <laughs> a national audience, uh, something and, 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 and on, on President Bush, by the way, I have to tell you that um, his humility, his self-effacing humility, just endeared him with the American people. And there were some Democrats who thought, well, he mangled the English language, so people aren't going to vote for him. And I just laughed at him. I thought, you're not getting it. Uh, you know, when he messed up and then he pointed fun at him, played, you know, made fun of himself, uh, he, he showed he was human, he showed he was real, he showed he... He, he didn't have a, a supersized ego. In terms of uh, my political career, I, I was lucky. I, I didn't have one of those I invented the Internet moments. But I, I think my biggest mistake was probably uh, that judgment error I talked about earlier, calling uh, my future wife on a Friday afternoon and asking her <laughs> if she'd go out with me that night. But I, I, I learned my lesson. <laughs> that's good that's good uh, also remarkable uh that you could get through uh 20 plus years uh you know it's it's interesting um you know you you got to be in politics with the evolution of of cell phones and and recordings and and stuff like that coming out right. i talking about bill clinton i was having lunch with a guy the other day and uh i forgot how we started talking about just presidents and and he was talking about how you know um his he grew up in arkansas and uh his dad one time when uh President Clinton was uh, in office. They were, I think they were in Jackson Hole or something. And he was playing golf and he noticed that the the hole beside this guy had this kind of this entourage with him. 
and couldn't figure out what it was. And later, um, when he realized it was President Clinton, walked over. They kind of got backed up on a hole and walked up to him and said, hey, where are you guys from? They said, Arkansas. And he said, well, you just need to come and join my group. And they're like, we're going to we're about to play president or golf with the president. And he said his dad would say he got up to tea and all of a sudden he said out of the trees and out of the woods started coming all these secret service agents. He was like, <laughs> I had no idea these guys were here the whole time. But it, but his overall point was that can't happen nowadays. Cell phones and, and, and things like that. This was just, you know, back in the 90s. And he yep. just said, you want to play golf? Let's play golf. And, and, and so that had to be a very interesting evolution uh, during your career, but also uh, props to you for being able to get out with uh, nothing caught on tape or anything. Well, it, it, it was uh, Congressman Teague had an easier time where, where the press didn't record every single vote a member of Congress had, and it got a little more transparent, which is a healthy thing when I was in Congress. But now with the uh, tweets and cell phones, uh, you better be careful as a public official what what you say. I, I did almost make the mistake one time in not giving President Clinton a three-foot putt when Congressman Hefner and I were one up on the 15th green uh, over the president and his partner. And I, I would not make this up. Uh, Mr. Hefner chaired the Military Construction Appropriations Committee, and he brought me over and he said, son, he said, listen, the line item veto is, is law of the land now. My military construction bill is sitting on the president's desk, literally waiting to be signed. And you've got two barracks construction projects for Fort Hood in there. Why don't you give the president that three-foot putt? So I <laughs> turned around and, and gave the putt. And, and as a consequence, we got new barracks. Uh, or at least didn't have vetoed for our Fort Hood soldiers. I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, uh, Chet, you mentioned our mutual friend uh, who we love uh, so much and uh, talking about Robert and uh, Robert for uh, Robert Pearson for so many years, uh, faithfully, humbly shine shoes at the Waco airport. And yet um, he was in failing health. His vision was failing him. And within the two weeks of him passing away, uh, he had a trip to the doctor down in Temple. And it was former Congressman Chet Edwards and Leanne who put him in the car and took him down there. And the, and so when I ask you about your leadership style, I don't have to ask you what you have, because I know it's servant leadership. Uh, just your your love and care for, for fellow human beings and, and just uh, how you've humbly cared and led through all the years. Uh, and, and you mentioned already about learning an important leadership lesson about giving three foot putts to important people, but, uh, <laughs> but what are some other leadership lessons that you've learned along the way through your years of politics and, uh, and public service? Well, Glenn, thanks for your kind comments and, and what your former hospital colleagues did for Mr. Pearson in the last weeks of his life is something that I'll always uh, be grateful for the respect and, and care that they gave him. You know, I, I've been fascinated, uh, Jacob. I think you've studied leadership a, a great deal. And Glenn, you uh, practiced leadership your, your whole life. I've been fascinated about leadership ever since I walked up the three-core headquarters steps at Fort Hood as a brand-new freshman congressman, never having served in the Army, about to meet uh, uh, a general, a three-star general, who was the commander of all of Fort Hood and four or five other installations. And I was expecting a six foot six macho Rambo, uh, tough talking kind of guy to walk down the steps. And I looked and there was this five foot four, 145 pounder, maybe soaking wet, stuck out his hand and said, hi, Congressman, and introduced himself. And, um, you know, that started me on a 20 year quest for understanding about leadership that, uh, even in the macho army, uh, it wasn't about size, gruffness, or toughness. It was about earning the respect of your your fellow comrades. And so over the years, I think if I were to summarize the lessons I've learned, particularly watching military leaders, but also leaders in the faith community, education, business, and politics, it begins with integrity. Without integrity, <clears throat> no other leadership skills really count. It it then starts with vision uh, it is, you know, my good book says without vision, the people will perish. And so a real leader has vision for a better way to, to do things. Uh, then it's hard work uh, and then tenacity. Uh, 
I, I hope young people will not look at successful people they think are successful and think they had an easy road. You show me a successful person and I'll show you some people that hit some walls. And I love Michael Jordan talking about how many basketball shots he missed at the end of the game that caused his team to lose. And he said, I've failed in my life over and over and over again. And that's why I'm a success. Don't uh, for young people, don't be afraid of failure, but learn, for, learn from that failure and, and be tenacious. Abraham Lincoln lost five elections before he ran for president. I'm thinking, how would the world be a different place? Uh, there probably wouldn't be United States of America today. Had Lincoln given up after his second, third or fourth loss for political office, but he had had tenacity. And then finally, I think the two most underestimated leadership traits are humility and empathy. <clears throat> humility, uh, I think that speaks for itself. Not, nobody wants to work with someone who thinks he or she's better than the rest of us. But empathy, I'll never forget a four-star army general uh, once said, Chet, the soldiers won't care about what I say to them until they first know I care about them. And I think if I were to share other than integrity, uh, if I were to share uh, any leadership idea that I've learned in, in my life's uh, on, life on this earth, uh, it, it would be the importance of empathy, of understanding others, putting yourself in someone else's shoes, caring about others. That, that army soldier didn't get that fourth star on his shoulder because he was gruff and tough. And I'm sure he was tough and could make difficult decisions, but he got that fourth star and the other three that went along with it because he, his soldiers knew he cared about them. Uh, Chief Staff of the Army once asked me before an important hearing, Chet, how's the school bond election going at Copper's Cove? And I, I was blown away. He's about to wow. testify on a $60 billion Army budget and hundreds of issues before 50 ego uh, members of Congress on the House Armed Services Committee. And he's asking me about how did the school bond election go in Copper's Cove? That's because Copper's Cove had a lot of Fort Hood Army children in it. And he knew if that school bond election passed, those kids would get a better education and therefore we'd have a stronger army. And then those soldiers knew that General Sullivan cared about them. So uh, I know you can spend a lifetime talking about leadership, but in summary, those are the life's lessons I've learned about leadership from watching others throughout my, my career. Wow. What a great story. Yeah. I love that. Well, as we, as we wrap up here before the rapid fire questions, Kind of, I want to end on a on an encouraging uh, high note as as our for our listeners here uh, as it pertains to politics. Um, I, I want you. I guess my question is, what what encouragement w would you give? I, I know for I mean, I was with some friends the other night, and and they just said, has has it ever been this bad? Like it, the world is just going crazy. It, this is, the, I mean, we're just spinning out of control here. How do we ever get it back? And I know you, you, you turn on your phone, you turn on the TV, you turn on your radio. It's, it's disappointing, depressing, sad, aggravating. And, and, and my fear is, um, my generation and the generation b below us give up too quickly. And what I mean by that is, is not that we actually do, but that we will give up uh, on this this idea of that it can be better, that we can have conversations, that we can move the ball forward. So I guess my question to you is, from sitting in your seat, all the years of experience you have, what encouragement do you have to a younger generation that's looking to change the world and make it better? How do we do that? And is that possible? Jacob, I, I would say first to young people in my faith, don't give up on Christianity because Christians are imperfect. I'd say don't give up on democracy because politicians are far from, from perfect. You know, Professor Joanne Freeman of, of Yale described, and I'm, I want to read this to you, described the presidential campaign, and this are her direct words, nasty political mudslinging, campaign attacks and counterattacks, personal insults, outrageous newspaper invective, dire predictions of warfare and national collapse, innovative new forms of politicking, capitalizing on a growing technology, angry, dirty, crisis-ridden contest. Now, I think most people in your audience would agree that's a pretty good description of the 2020 and 2016 presidential campaigns in our country. But history professor Freeman wasn't talking about those elections. She was describing the presidential election of 1800 between wow. Thomas Jefferson 
and John Adams, two of our most esteemed founding fathers. So I would say to young people, if you look at our political system in every generation, there have been those who've given up on our democracy, but yet we've survived and, and we've gotten better, more rights for you know more citizens of all races, religions, and and backgrounds. So uh, I, I'm an optimistic, I'm an optimistic person long term about our democracy. I don't know that we'll get out of this partisan quagmire we're in right now. It's partly a reflection of our overall culture, as you referenced earlier, but we will get there. We have a great constitution. Uh, the American people are a uniquely strong and, and blessed people, and uh, we, we will we will make it we'll make it okay. And as I said earlier, uh, all is not broken. If if our immigration problem is more people want to live here than 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 not live here. That's good. That's good. I, I like that. I like that quote. Well, <clears throat> Chet, uh, you have had the opportunity to sit in front of. Uh, Colleagues, committee meetings, uh, you've been grilled by the press, but but we're going to put you through the rapid fire questions of chasing what matters now. And and so uh, you got it. I'm, I feel confident you can handle it, but we'll, we'll see here. So, Dad, uh, you want to lead off with the first question? You bet. Chet, best and worst advice that you've ever received? Best was from my mother, said life is about being loved and loving. Uh, worst advice? Uh, probably came from my dad one time, who I love dearly, he taught me how to enjoy life every single day. But he said, Chet, invest in shrimp boats. I should not have listened to, to that <laughs> advice. <laughs> oh, Interesting. Goodness. That that advice, uh, bad advice has not been on the show. So that's that's a that's a first. <laughs> that, that's a new, yeah. I think the, the bigger lesson, Jacob, is don't invest in things you don't know anything about. There you go. There you go. That's good. That's good. Uh, next question. Uh, who are the most influential people in your life? Well, without a doubt, my wife and two sons, they are the love of my life. They are what uh, give meaning to, to my life. As a child, my mother and father, I was so blessed. Again, mother showed me what unconditional love was all about, uh, the power and the meaning of unconditional love and family. And my father taught me again to you know, this is the day the Lord has made, you know, let us be glad and rejoice in it. That's not exact phrasing, but the point is every day is a blessing and we ought to, to enjoy it. I think in my political career, Congressman Olin Teague took a young, wet behind the ears, uh, Aggie graduate and uh, gave me the belief that I wouldn't have had in my own self. And maybe that's another point about leadership, leadership, leader, real leaders give people uh, a better understanding of their capabilities and those people might have themselves. So Tiger Teague, Congressman Teague opened up that uh, opportunity. And I'll have to say, I haven't talked about him, but a huge influence on my life has been Congressman John Lewis. <clears throat> if I were to pick one elected official out of the thousands I've served with who personified for me Christian love and faith and action in public service, it would be Congressman John Lewis, who in his 20s led the Voting Rights March in Selma, Alabama, was nearly killed for marching for that fundamental right for all Americans to vote. He then spent a life in public service, one of the big six leaders of the civil rights movement. And what I loved about John and respected about him was not just that he made a difference, he made this world a better place and was a historic figure, but he was humble and there was not an ounce of hatred. Imprisoned 40 times, nearly killed in Selma, not one ounce of hatred, uh, full of forgiveness for anyone who might have done unjust things for him. Uh, to me, every time I looked at John Lewis, I, I saw faith in, in action, and he's a wonderful role model, whether one's a conservative, a moderate, a liberal, or whatever political backgrounds might be. Wow. You know, I think, gosh, thank you for recognizing Congressman John Lewis, because I think he is the epitome of of movers and shakers that people don't fully realize the scope of their influence. And for the rest of us, we don't realize until sadly they're gone. And then I think about his memorial and then all the people that just began to talk about how he had impacted their lives and how he'd impacted uh, their their 
you know, whether it's the civil rights movement or whether it's right. other key initiatives across our land, he was not, he was not a one subject individual. He cared about people and their individual plights. And, uh, and, uh, you know, it's just another example of how I wish that people could see their own funeral sometimes, because, uh, I, I think sometimes they don't know how much they're loved. You're right. And that's certainly the case with John Lewis. And, and I'll say, Glenn, that John and I often have conversations late at night off the house floor. And he told me one of the the real secrets, the unknown secrets of the civil rights movement success of the 50s and 60s was it was built around a foundation of Christian love. And, and I think one of the hardest commandments in, in my faith is to you know love thy enemies. Uh, that's a tough one for, for most of us. But for John Lewis, um, he, he didn't just preach that. He, he lived it. And it was the core of the success of the civil rights movement. I think that kind of Christian love uh, and forgiveness um, and not hating thy enemies would be a good role model for anyone that wants to bring about change, whether it's in our personal family, whether it's in our community, our state or our country. Yeah, well said. Well, Chet, in addition to some of the things we've been talking about, what other big events have taken place in your life over this past year? Well, it was a challenging year for all of us because of COVID, but last October, my youngest son got married and the next afternoon, my oldest son proposed uh, to his girlfriend, Lily. And uh, for a, an older papa, uh, that 24-hour period was about as special as it gets because the the, the older I get in life, the more I realize uh, uh, family is the center of our, our love, center of our meaning in life. And so that was a very special year for us. Wow. Well, uh, I would just say that's some of the richness, but uh, you and Leanne still have got uh, more coming with uh, grandkids and those kinds of things that are just some of the richest blessings of life. Grand, grandchild number one on the way in December, and yes. we can't nice. we can't wait. Uh, look for, <laughs> listen, my my, and I've got some experience because when I my kids were in third and fourth grades. I was an older father, so the PTA, at the PTA meetings, they just thought I was their grandfather. So I've gotten a little bit of pre-training. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, man. Love well, congratulations. It. And congratulations. Uh, thank, sure. thank you, yeah. Jacob. Uh, yeah. Well, next question. When was the last time you took a risk, and how did it work out? A big risk. Uh, last March, I went snow skiing in Colorado with my 24-year-old son, and, and that was a, a risk. And it turned out okay because we had a great time and I didn't break a leg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's for sure a risk. Well, this one may be a little hard for you, and I can't wait to hear your answer. Best or most meaningful place that you've ever visited? Best or most meaningful place? That's a tough one. But I think if I had to pick one, it would be Normandy, France. Mm -hmm. uh, as I referenced on the 50th anniversary of D-Day, walking along Omaha Beach and then going up to the cemetery where those 19, 20, 21-year-old Americans uh, were buried, uh, having given their lives for the freedom of our nation and our, and our world. I'll, I will never forget uh, the honor of, and, and the lesson of, of that visit. Hmm. Wow. Well, you, you've referenced them uh, already, but, but uh, tell us about or describe something you learned from your parents. Well, I, I think, again, most importantly, from my mother, I learned about unconditional love. And I don't think a child can fully understand the unconditional love of a parent until we become a parent. But my mother made me feel loved every day. And I will say, after two-year study of education with all the experts in the world in the mid-1990s, asked Congressman Gephardt, who led that effort, what, what was the number one lesson you learned? And he said, it wasn't about teaching methodology. It was, if a child feels loved, he or she will learn. And, and, and I'll always remember that. But my mother uh, taught me that. And again, my father just had a, a joy of, of living every day. He had fun every day. And uh, he reminded me, he kind of preached this sermon to enjoy life and realize every day is a blessing. Uh -huh. Yeah. Good advice. Well, here's, here's another goodie best and worst job you've ever had? Best job was having the privilege of working for the people of Central Texas for 20 years in, in the U.S. Congress, uh, where maybe once in a while I had a chance to positively impact uh, someone's family life or perhaps 
influence uh, some issues nationally. The worst job I ever had had to had, has to go back to high school in Houston, Texas, in July and August when I worked outside helping build a golf course there. Um, I, I learned to respect uh, people who labor out in the hot sun and in the cold winters. And I also learned uh, that's when I knew I wanted to get a good education because I didn't want to uh, do that very, very hard work uh, my entire life. Yeah, and you yeah. and you probably never looked at a golf course the same ever since. That certainly made me appreciate them a lot more than I have yeah. uh, had before. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Chet, what book are you reading right now? President Kennedy, uh, Profile and Power. And uh, a friend loaned it to me. And it's fascinating because it's giving you an inside view of what it felt like at the time when President Kennedy literally felt there was a one in five chance that the U.S. and the Soviet Union would go to nuclear war over the the issue of Berlin. And I haven't even gotten to the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, where there was probably a greater than one in five chance. But it just gave me, it's given me incredible appreciation for the unbelievable pressures on a president of the United States. And that's why I think we everyday Americans need to step back once in a while and and um, and respect our democracy and respect those who've been elected to to lead our our democracy. It's a it's a tough job. Uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, knew that when he was in office, and then sadly gave his life uh, in service to country when he was assassinated. But uh, it's a tough job. Uh, but uh, it's a fascinating fascinating book on what it's really like to be president of the United States. Mm. President Kennedy, Profile and Power. Chad, how about in addition to the Bible, the best book you've ever read? Don Quixote uh, by Miguel de Cervantes. Uh, read that in a great books course my freshman year, Jacob, at, at Texas A&M. And uh, it just it, it opened up my vision. It, it taught me that I should dream, uh, uh, dream big dreams and uh, try to make a difference in this world. And I started out the first few hundred pages laughing at this crazy man uh, riding around, uh, squaring around the countryside, tilting at windmills. And then at some point, it just grabbed me and realized, no, what this book is about is realizing that every person can make a difference in the world. And and for those of us to whom faith is important, it, it's part of our calling, part of our mission in life to to make the world a better place. So I love I love the book, uh, Don Quixote. Wow. Wow. Well, final question here. What's next for Chet? Becoming a grandfather in December is <laughs> the most exciting thing uh, ahead. And and continuing to apologize to my wife of 28 years for having invited her out on uh, for Friday night date, uh, doing that on Friday afternoon. Well, that, <laughs> that uh, honestly sounds like a lifelong pursuit. So, uh, you know, good luck with that last one. Uh, Absolutely. But, but congratulations on the first one. But, uh, well, Chet, thank you so much uh, for being on the show today. It is an honor when you said yes to this. We were uh, just just floored and, and humbled. And so thank you uh, for taking time to sit down and, and talk to us and our listeners today. Glenn, Jacob, thank thank you both. You know, And thank you for focusing on chasing what matters. In this world, we often get caught up in our daily busyness over things. As we look back on them, really weren't very important and. Uh, the two of you are encouraging all of us to think about what really matters in this world and faith and leadership and love and family. So uh, it's an honor for me to be with you. Well, thank you. Well, to our listeners, uh, we'll have all the links uh, to Chet's profiles and his uh, company website in the show notes below. So please te- check that out. And as always, thank you uh, for listening today. Our guest today, former Congressman Chet Edwards and partner of Edwards Davis Stover and Associates in Virginia. Chet, thank you again, my friend, for being here. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in today. Make sure that you subscribe, share our podcast with others, and follow us along on our Instagram account. And until next time, keep chasing what matters.